This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Dr. John Bergsma, who is a professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. He served as a Protestant pastor for four years before entering the Catholic Church in 2001 while pursuing a doctorate specializing in the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls from the University of Notre Dame. He's a prolific author, a number of titles out there that are just fantastic. One of my favorites is the, um, the Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament. It's a lovely volume from Ignatius Press. Uh, I highly encourage it if you're at all interested in doing any serious biblical studies. But today, if it's not quite your speed, we're talking about his book on Ave Maria Press, Love Basics for Catholics. This is part of the Basics for Catholics series. Uh, he's got one on the Bible, on the, the Old Testament, and on the Psalms, all available from Ave Maria Press. And if stick figures are your speed, this is the book for you. Uh, Dr. Bergsma, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Yeah, it's great to be with you. So first of all, when I think of biblical studies and theology, stick figures are not the first thing that comes to mind. Maybe flannel graph, but um, the <laughs> the first first question I have is, did you draw the stick figures? I did draw the stick figures. Yes, I did. Those stick figures are, um, you know, a cleaned up versions of what I do on the chalkboard and have been doing for 20 years, uh, teaching uh, our theology majors at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And uh, the, you know, they say, um, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, so here it was uh, 2004, and um, I'm about to start teaching my first semester of biblical studies at Franciscan University. I'm thinking, okay, I've been locked up in a closet for the past five years writing a big book because that's what the powers that be think will prepare you for teaching 18 to 22-year-olds for the rest of your life. So. <laughs> Here I am, and I, I got the prospect of keeping these kids awake for a you know a seventy-five minute Tuesday Thursday period, and like what am I going to do to make this interesting or accessible or anything? And I'm looking at uh, my notes on Dr. Hans Magnum Opus, the um, Kinship by Covenant, which is basically his biblical theology, which I read four times because I was helping him. Uh, get it through the editorial process at two different publishers. I'm looking at my notes of this and I realized, you know, all these covenants that Han talks about, they all take place on a mountaintop. And you know what? I can draw a mountain. I can draw like a stick figure Moses, you know? So I started sketching this out and uh, first day of class, I started drawing it on the board and uh, they're all, you know, leaning around trying to see what I'm doing. You know, sometimes I uh, strategically position my body so they can't see what's, you know, taking shape on the board. So there's a bit of a reveal when I step back and they, you know, look at that up there. And uh, so anyway, that, that, that started my uh, stick figure shtick. And I, you know, some people like myself, I mean, we're visual learners. I know there's a lot of people that are visual learners and you like to have an image to hang concepts on in your mind's eye. And um, so I got started doing that and I've just adapted it to different uh, you know, parts of the Bible, Psalms, and now most recently following the theme of love and marriage uh, through the Bible. 
Whenever you talk about Bible to a Catholic audience, you, you get the stereotype. Well, Catholics don't read the Bible. Catholics don't know the Bible. To the point that some Catholics even begin to believe the stereotype and say, oh, well, you know, that's a Protestant thing to know the Bible that well. That's not really for us. And they may look at you and say, well, of course, you're interested in the Bible. You were a Protestant pastor for four years before you became Catholic. What would you say to that cradle Catholic who's uncertain about digging too far into the Bible apart from hearing it on Sunday? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say they probably know the Bible a lot better than they realize because much more of the Bible is actually read uh, in the Catholic Mass uh, than is usually read in Protestant services. I don't know what your experience, T.L., was, but um, my entire high school career, my my pastor at my local Baptist church, God love him, wonderful man, but he preached through Ephesians for my entire high school career, you know, one verse a week, and then taking breaks for, uh, you know, a patriotic, patriotic sermon on July 4th and Christmas sermons in December, and then back to Ephesians. And so there wasn't actually that much uh, variety of what was uh, read and proclaimed uh, on a Sunday. As Catholics, we get a, a, a pretty a pretty nice um, sampling and distribution of readings throughout Scripture. Uh, most of the key stories and events are somewhere in the church's calendar. And so first thing I'd say is most Catholics probably know the Bible better than they realize, even if they couldn't find their way around a printed Bible if it was handed to them. They're actually more familiar with the contents, again, than, than folks expect. Uh, the other thing I would say is um, Protestant knowledge of Scripture is much exaggerated. <laughs> I, I went to one of the better uh, Protestant seminaries in the country, and uh, three-quarters of my fellow seminarians uh, failed out of the introductory uh, Bible knowledge exam that we had to take as freshman seminarians. And this was not rocket science. This was things like put these guys in, an or in order, you know, Adam, Abraham, David, and Moses, you know. And uh, we had guys flunking out of this. So what, what, what happens, though, is many Protestants— um, uh, have six or seven verses memorized that they can quote. And that's probably five or six verses more than your average Catholic can, can quote. And so the, it can sound very oppressive in conversation. But the last thing I would say, TL, is, you know, the Bible is our family story as Catholics. And, you know, th think about, think about um, you know, a child who maybe was separated from birth, you know, taken home by the wrong family from the hospital, and then at age 18 realizes, oh, I'm re I really belong to the Bergsma family. And they come over to the house and, and come in, and they don't know the family traditions, and they've never seen the family photos, and they've never been to family Christmas, and so on, and how they'd have to get up to speed on that. And uh, if we as Catholics never read the Bible, then we're like those, uh, you know, separated at birth members of the family uh, coming back, and we don't know the family history, and we don't know the family pictures, and so on. So the the scriptures are really our heritage. Um, it was it was our saints who wrote them. It was uh, it was the the saints and the monks and the priests throughout the Middle Ages and many uh, sketchy times in church history that kept the Bible uh, alive, copied it, studied it, proclaimed it, etc. Long before there were any Protestants around. And so I'd say claim, claim your heritage, get to know your family history. Um, all, all, the, all the people that you read about in Scripture are your spiritual ancestors, and you, you are their spiritual legacy. 
And um, so, you know, welcome to the family. I love that that picture of the family book and the legacy book. As a Protestant growing up, specifically in in my tradition, because as you know, Protestantism isn't a monolith. Yeah. But in my expression, the scripture was often treated like the answer book. It's the place that you went, kind of like the book of laws to go and figure out how to be, uh, much less than it was the story of our family. And I yeah. see this even as we hear the scriptures in mass, where the readings from the Old Testament are tied always to the reading from the New Testament. It's not just, oh, we're going to read a selection. It's we're going to read things that help us better understand the family yeah. story. And so it becomes much more, as you talk about here, uh, illustrating God's love for us throughout the Bible, rather than it just being this kind of disparate collection of stories that have no bearing on one another. And we just read it to kind of figure out some answer to some problematic question we face. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, my I begin the book by with that uh, that one hit wonder from the uh, the '60s. You know, who wrote the Book of Love from the monotones? And I I wanted to quote the whole song, but a copyright I couldn't. So folks have to look up the lyrics on their own if they've not heard it. Uh, but it's a catchy you know song that went viral before things went viral. And um, but it, it's it has its profound moments. I mean, the monotone singing there at one point, you know, uh, who wrote the book of love? Was it someone from above? Well, yeah, you know, and, and the Bible is that book of love. It, it quite literally is a message from God trying to explain to us how he loves us and is continually trying to welcome us into his family. And I, I totally agree with you, T.L. I grew up in a Calvinist background, which had a very legalistic streak to it. And so he very much emphasized law and uh, the study of divine law, which is fine and, and definitely has its place and properly understood. You know, the law supports love. It should follow uh, the, the direction and the motivation of love. Um, but yeah, but love is more fundamental. And, um, you know, one of the things about families is that you learn things uh, as the generations pass you begin to develop best practices. You know, your grandparents go through crisis and they find out, you know, there's a certain way of doing family life that, you know, works better. And that when, when there's a pandemic or a famine or a war, you know, doing family this way will get everybody through uh, in a healthy way and, and doing family a different way will probably lead to the end of the family tradition when there's a crisis. And so you learn things over the generations. And what I feel like is if, if we don't study the scriptures, if we don't read, for example, the Old Testament, uh, we repeat the mistakes and we don't learn from the patriarchs. We don't learn from the prophets. Uh, we don't learn from the kings. We don't learn from the mistakes of the past. And that's particularly important in the area of marriage. And as I try to show in this book, T.L., you know, marriage is front and center in the story of salvation from the marriage of Adam and Eve all the way to the marriage of the Lamb and his bride at the end of the book of Revelation. And it's always quite close to the center line of the developing story of how God's trying to save us as his people. And uh, we learned, we've, we've learned a few things about how to do marriage right and how to, not to do it right over the generations. And if we don't read the book, don't read the family history, uh, we can really mess it up in the current generation. The subtitle of the book is Illustrating God's Love for Us Throughout the Bible. And I want to hone in on that for just a second, because we hear 
phrases, you know, Jesus loves you, you know, God's love for us is is eternal. We hear these phrases so often that they almost become undefined. It's just the, kind of this trite little thing that gets thrown out. Well, Jesus loves you, and there's there's not really a whole lot of time taken to really meditate on what what that means. And specifically in our culture today, uh, love has become synonymous with uh, with an emotional a reception of an emotional feeling. Uh, and, and so I think that in many ways, we not only rob ourselves of a definition of what it means to love someone, uh, because we just kind of follow along in that cultural understanding of it, but we also rob our understanding of what it means for the divine, for God to love us in a specific way. You spent a little bit of time in the introduction and early chapters of the book, defining that idea of what it means to be loved by God and what it means to love one another. And I wonder if you might share that with us here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we don't have a lot of words for love in the English language, but in in Hebrew, uh, the original language of scripture, uh, there's uh, several different words that capture different aspects of it. Um, but the most important, I, th- I would argue, is, is the word hesed, uh, which is kind of untranslatable. You can't Get you can't capture it in certainly in one word in English, but uh, the 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 ancient Israelites had this word Hesed, which referred to uh, covenantal love, the kind of love that's appropriate for people that are in a really a sacred, unbreakable family bond between one another that have sworn oaths to one another, and one of the only forms of covenant that still remains familiar to us today is marriage. Marriage is a covenant where two people swear oaths essentially to one another uh, to be faithful for life. And marriage was a covenant also in ancient times and throughout Scripture. It's arguably the dominant form of covenant that's used as an image throughout um, throughout Scripture. So um, it's it, this word hesed, which is covenantal love and, and faithfulness, it's equal parts love and faithfulness. Um, it's the only attribute of God that's mentioned more than once in God's famous description of himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. And in ancient times, this word was often translated mercy. And that was, that's what gave rise to the common expression, God's greatest attribute is his mercy. But if you look at what that word is in Hebrew, it's really covenantal love and faithfulness. And so God is love. You know, St. John teaches us that. God is love, that famous line from uh, the first epistle of John, but what kind of love, St. John? And I truly believe that St. John is channeling the idea of hesed from the Old Testament. So it's not it's not erotic love, like just God is you know excited because we're so good looking. Um, it's not just friendship love, like, oh, we get along great and we really enjoy, I don't know, playing uh, sports together or something. But it's this covenantal, love and faithfulness. God is is spousal towards us. And it gets really um, graphic in the Old Testament. It gets really uh, uh, sometimes painfully uncomfortable, uh, the depths to which God will love. I mean, there's there's uh, R-rated, even, uh, you know, almost X-rated passages of the prophet Ezekiel, for example, where he graphically describes how unfaithful we've been to God and how much he continues to love us like a, a loving husband that will not take no for an answer and keeps coming back and wooing his uh, spouse back to him. 
Uh, it is, it's a, it's a profound, it's a costly love. It's uh, a love that is in there for the long haul, um, that, uh, that will not uh, uh, allow itself to be broken. That's the kind of love um, that, uh, that we mean when we, when we speak of God loving us or God being love. And as moderns, you're, you're absolutely right, Teal. It's almost like we, we need to go back to the Bible, reread the story just to understand what love is. And speaking of that, that's Foreigner's famous uh, song, you know, I want to know what love is, and I think you can show me. Yeah, well, God has shown us what you want to know what love is. It's not at a rock concert and it's not in a bar. It's on Calvary. Okay. The, the answer to Foreigner's song is look at Calvary, look at Jesus Christ, the God man of Nazareth, shedding his blood for you. That's God showing us what love is. Now, Aquinas, in his definition of love, says that love is to will the good of the other. How do we understand God's love? both God's love towards us through that definition, and then in the reverse, how do we understand our love towards God through that definition of willing the good of the other being what love is? I mean, we, we see this, uh, you know, one of the things I discuss in the book, uh, TL, is how, um, you know, uh, through, the, through the blessing of Revelation to understand that God is a trinity um, helps us to understand better the nature of love and how our God, the God of Christian Revelation, uh, truly uh, manifests love to a degree unlike other world philosophies and other world religions. So we believe as Christians, based on sacred scripture and revelation, that uh, God himself is, is a circle of self-gift, not just willing the, the, uh, the good of the other, but uh, kind of instantiating that through the gift of self. So the Father gives himself to the Son, the Son gives himself to the Father, and as some theologians describe it, the self that they exchange is the Holy Spirit. So God in himself is this cycle of self-giving love. Too often in our society, love is, is really a, a way of describing uh, taking pleasure in another person or using another person for one's pleasure. Uh, very rarely in our society do we really get to the point where love is giving yourself to someone else, making a sacrifice of self. But our God in himself is a circle of self-giving love, of continual self-emptying. And uh, so God doesn't create the world because he needs something to love. He's got the perfection of love within himself. But as, you know, love is, is self-diffusive. Uh, love seeks to expand, to flow outwards. And so um, uh, God, out of, his, out of the overflow of his goodness, creates the world in order to share himself with others. And he invites us into that circle of self-giving love. And one of the ways that we that we model and participate in that in that love of giving ourselves away is through marriage. Uh, that's where I give myself to my wife, my wife gives herself to me. And that love that we share becomes instantiated, becomes manifested in another in another person. And that's the natural model of the Trinity, the natural model of God's nature within uh, the created design. And so from that, we come to realize, oh, marriage isn't just an institution to regulate childbirth or to you know, help in the proper organization of society. No, marriage is uh, a revelation of the deepest uh, truth about reality, which is God himself. 
and um, and the the personal love uh, that he shares. And so, uh, you know, we yeah, it's it's amazing where uh, God invites us into participating in these mysteries of of his personhood. This is what we call marriage a sacrament. You know, it's a it's a sacred thing, a sacred participation in God's grace because through it we learn to give ourselves away. Uh, like the persons of the Trinity share themselves with each other and indeed with us as well. Um, so yeah, that's uh, what I would say about that. You go through, you, you've brought up a couple of times the idea that that through our family history, looking at this picture of marriage, we come to understand the love of God more clearly. And in the first part of your book, first five chapters, you you're looking at specific encounters of of covenant love between either uh, between either husband and wife or between family members. Um, do you think that we're hearing the same story in each of these, or is something more being revealed to us with each uh, additional story about what it means to to love and to be loved? Yeah, no, I think there's beautiful uh, accounts of loving and being loved uh, throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament, into the Gospels and, and the New Testament. And uh, with, with every particular couple, whether that's uh, Adam and Eve or Roaz and Booth, Boaz and Ruth, excuse me, or uh, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, um, uh, you know, Tobit and Sarah, um, these these beautiful accounts uh, all are um, the reflections of divine love, uh, you know, broken through a prism into into different colors. And so, in in each one of these uh, holy marriages, and yeah, especially in uh, you know looking at and pondering uh, the marriage of the Blessed Mother and Saint Joseph, um, through all of them, we learn a great deal about um, uh, what love is, how it is to be expressed between spouses, uh, for that matter. But it's broader than that, uh, more generally as well, uh, in family life. Um, and uh, ultimately, you know, the message of Scripture is that as human beings, we are one family. Uh, this is why the church recognized uh, for a long time that there are some some dangers in certain kinds of evolutionary thinking that would have us, you know, different different races of the human family having different origins and so on. And various popes have written quite strongly against that. No, uh, the the message of scripture is we are one big family and uh, kind of implicitly bound together by this hesed, uh, by this uh, familial love um, that is, uh, that's formalized uh, in, in covenants and especially in the covenant of marriage. So yeah, in, in the different stories of scripture, um, we learn many of the different aspects of love, how love expresses itself in different situations, and they're all worth pondering. And so kind of the book where I kind of go through and take these famous marriages, Adam and Eve, Noah and his wife, uh, uh, Isaac and Rebecca, and uh, Boaz and Ruth, and each of them is kind of a, a contemplation, like uh, like walking through an art museum and stopping each time to look at the the delicate you know shades of color and what's being expressed and the the expressions on the faces and so on kind of a, a long meditation on God's love for us and how it's been expressed throughout salvation history in various uh, very real very historical um, uh, spouses and couples mm-hmm. as we look at uh, the story of of love throughout 
history. Um, what are some things that we can do to begin to break ourselves out of maybe our, our status quo understanding of love to expand our ideas, explore the things that maybe we're missing because we we've not been taught. We haven't, we we've taken a cultural understanding. What are some steps that we can take to maybe expanding our boundaries of understanding uh, to a deeper expression of love? Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that our, that our contemporary society uh, needs to grasp that we, each one of us personally, not just kind of general, like we, we're in a society, you know, no, it's, it's, it's very personal. I personally, as well as most people I know, uh, all need to learn better. Uh, the, the, uh, kind of the integral relationship between love and sacrifice. You know, I think previous generations knew this better. When I look at the, the old, uh, classics, you know, those are romantic classics. Um, people made sacrifices in these movies and that's what made them so moving even in, um, um, you know, uh, so some of the, uh, you know, epic masterpieces of the silver screen. The reason why they continue to move us today is because in the end, for example, maybe the couple can't get together, even though they do love each other, but there's greater things that are going on that, um, and like in the movie Casablanca, for example, you know, for the sake of better good and for the, the sake of the common good, I should say, uh, you know, those two that are in love uh, don't end up getting married. Now, in in, in modern movie making, they, you know, it wouldn't work like that. They would break off their relationships and just run off because we don't have that spirit of sacrifice. But I think that uh, very much so in our uh, spiritual lives and in our relationships with 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 other human beings, um, uh, the principle of sacrifice and the principle of fidelity that these are quintessential expressions of love. That's what we need to learn. And that love is not simply, uh, and not even primarily expressed through sexuality. Um, but love comes down to doing things like actually doing the laundry, um, holding down the job and paying the bills. Um, you know, I tell my students at Franciscan, look, right now, a lot of you are dating and you're 20 something and you look good and she looks good and what's not to love. And so you think you're in love, but you won't know you're actually in love until you wake up at about 3 a.m. And your spouse says, I think I'm going to be sick. And instead of running away, you actually run down, grab a salad bowl and go back upstairs and hold it for them to puke in. That's love. You know, if we're, I want to know what love is, love is holding a salad bowl for your spouse <laughs> to throw up in. That's really, I'm very serious about that. And, and also hearing the baby cry at 3 a.m. And, and, and for the sake of your, you know, your spouse to have a good night's sleep, you're like, you know what, I'm going to run down. I'm going to change the diaper because I'm afraid she or he is going to wake up, you know, and I, I want them to get a good night's sleep. That's, that's what we have to relearn as a society and the Bible can help us in that. We're talking again today with Dr. John Bergsma, professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. The book is on Ave Maria Press. It's Love Basics for Catholics, illustrating God's love for us throughout the Bible. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. 
And don't go anywhere. There is so much more to come right after this break. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. John Bergsma, professor of theology at the Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, He's got a book out on Ave Maria Press, part of a series. This one's called Love Basics for Catholics, Illustrating God's Love for Us Throughout the Bible. It's part of the Basics for Catholics series that he's written. Uh, A number of really accessible volumes that help you engage with and understand the meaning of Scripture more clearly. You can learn more at AveMariaPress.com. Dr. Bergsma, thank you again for joining us today. Absolutely, too. It's really my pleasure and honor. So we were talking about recapturing a, a definition of love that understands at its core sacrifice. And there's kind of a pendulum swing away from sacrifice as and understanding culturally of love, I think primarily because within the the previous generations, sacrifice was maybe understood not in its purest sense. So we see a lot of people resisting the idea of sacrificing for the sake of a relationship because they maybe they witnessed their parents or their grandparents where the sacrifice was one-sided, where the sacrifice was expected of one spouse and not of the other, uh, where it looked more like uh, ruling and and being subservient more than it looked like being in covenant with. So how do we, as, as people who are um, trying to reclaim an understanding, a, a scriptural understanding of what it means to love as a self-gift, as self-sacrifice within this covenantal relationship, how do we communicate that in a way that doesn't bring up the red flags of maybe the abusive or difficult relationships that they've witnessed other people, maybe using those same terms without having the same understanding? Well, that's a complicated question. Now, I think primarily for those of us who are married, communicating these truths to our children is paramount. And uh, the primary way that uh, th- these truths are communicated is through our own example. Um, so th- the idea is, you know, what are we modeling uh, in within family life um, between husband and wife? You know, and um, you know when you look at uh, St. Paul's uh, primary instruction on uh, Christian marriage, which is in Ephesians five, um, we spent a good bit of time talking about this in my New Testament classes. And uh, yeah, indeed, it it, it uh, tells tells wives in that passage to place yourselves under, quite literally, that's what the hupotasso in, in, in uh, Greek, place yourselves under your husbands. Um, and so it, it asks for this kind of deference of the wife towards the husband. But then um, the husband's leadership is uh, constrained by the most extreme constraint that you could possibly imagine uh, is, is leadership of, of the home, of the marriage, uh, is, is linked to the example of the self-sacrificial love of Christ. So only, only those actions which are consistent with the example of uh, Christ's self-sacrificial, self-giving love, uh, only within that narrow bond, that, that narrow path, is, is, he, is the husband, as it were, commissioned to be a, a leader. 
And um, so any other kind of constraints that St. Paul might have put on on a husband might have had loopholes, but there's no loophole to uh, the uh, the self-sacrificial Christ-like love. And uh, so that means, you know, for husbands, I mean, that, that's what I have to be concerned about. I have to be concerned about my role as a husband uh, for that, for that. Uh, the practical implication for me is, uh, you know, taking 100% responsibility of the welfare of my family uh, and my spouse. And, um, you know, what, what actually helped me in this TL is, is a book by, of all people, a Navy SEAL. You know, uh, many, many of our listeners may know, you know, Jocko Willett is a famous podcaster, former Navy SEAL and so on. He, he wrote a book called, um, uh, I, think, uh, it's, I think it's Extreme... Um, Extreme responsibility. Let me see. Is that it? Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, something close to that. Forgive me if I'm getting the title uh, a little bit off. Extreme ownership. There we go. Extreme ownership. And it's a it's about the the uh, taking complete responsibility for those who are under your care, and uh, illustrated with you know uh, rather dramatic stories from combat and so on. TL, I found the book so edifying because as I was reading through it. All I could think about again and again was the way that Christ took 100% responsibility for the welfare of us, his people, us, his bride, uh, to the point of going to the cross for us, uh, pouring out his life for us, etc. And how that's that's the spousal model. You know, that becomes the paradigm for understanding spousal love uh, in Scripture. And I began to embrace that in my own a role as a husband and father in the home, down to things like, you know, for me, it meant uh, stop complaining about stuff around the house. Like if I see, see something laying on the floor, rather like, who left this on the floor? You know, pick it up myself, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if I see something that's not working, like, so, you know, the laundry's not getting done or the cooking's not getting done or something like that, instead of complaining, like uh, figure out, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do to to take care of this situation. And if I can't do it myself, can I ask, you know, other members of the family if they can help, you know, help me take care of this. And it tra- really uh, it transformed uh, my uh, relationship with my wife and with my kids, stop the complaining and, um, you know, just um, uh, accepting responsibility for the welfare of others. I mean, th- this is this is key. And there's not, you know, I, I think that our younger generations in our schools, in the general culture, not encouraged to have that concept of taking complete responsibility for others uh, to the point that, you know, you you will hold the bag, so to speak, and, uh, and make sure that others are taken care of. And that's at the heart of the kind of spousal love that the scriptures are telling us about. Back when I was doing marriage preparation uh, for the diocese I worked for, I had uh, I had couples come in and we had like a panel. So the engaged couples could ask these couples that have been married for a number of different lengths of time questions, any question they wanted to. Uh, and so one of them uh, that came in was a, a couple that was active in the Retrovime movement, which is a, a retreat for people who are experiencing marital difficulty and maybe it's their last lifeline. And so they've been in that for they had actually been married for a number of years and then uh, had gotten divorced and then had gotten remarried to one another. And now we're active and leading this community. And I recall the question of, of submission came up and um, the husband 
went over and picked up a crucifix and held it up and said, guys, this is your job description. Uh, so all the future times I would, I, even when they weren't there, I would, I would share that. Uh, and I expanded it just a little bit. I said, this is your job description. We're called as husbands uh, to lay down our lives for our wives. And I said, it's really easy to do. You know, we, we have these, these grand ideas of what that looks like. And it's really easy to do when we're cornered in the dark alley. Uh, it's really difficult to do when your wife asks for the remote control. Uh, <laughs> so there's, there's a laying down of our lives that we kind of like to, to glorify in this blaze of glory, but it's all the little, little deaths throughout the day that we lay down our own, uh, our own pleasure, our own desire, our own will for the sake of the other. And that, to me, that's how I try to conceptualize and understand what it means to will the good of the other is to lay myself down for the benefit of everybody else in the household. Yeah. And I think that when we think of, of duty, one, we think of it as a, as a cold and, uh, something that is imposed upon us that, that we have to live up to. Um, and it feels very harsh and unyielding. When I think of duty, I, I tend to think of it in, in line of what am I binding myself to for the sake of everyone else? It's not imposed, rather it's something that's taken on uh, by virtue of what it is that I am binding myself to. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I tell you, it, it, we, can, we can have that, um, you know, that kind of uh, cold and, um, you know, um, bondage kind of idea of duty that's like, oh, just something that you have to do. But when I, when I hear duty, I, I often think when you are the recipient of duties that are faithfully performed, you know, like when, when someone has a duty to bring you food and you know what, they do it and, uh, and you're fed. And, uh, and you've also had the experience of having folks who had that duty and did not fill it out. Uh, fulfill it. And you've, you've been hungry in your life when those who had the responsibility to care for you actually didn't, you know, duty takes on a whole uh, different perspective than when you are the beneficiary of uh, fidelity and have also had the experience of not uh, receiving that uh, fidelity. And, um, you know, for, for me, you know, duty ends up being synonymous with love um, duty is really the the bonds of love uh, writ large. Yeah, we can misunderstand it in a cold way, but ultimately, you know, when we think of, you know, duty is often uh, brought up in the context of military services. Um, but why do we honor people in the military so much? It's well, it's they're really doing a supreme act of love. Um, they're putting their lives at risk, um, you know, for the benefit of the rest of us, uh, so that the rest of us can enjoy those, you know, blessings of peace, liberty, etc. And um, so at the, at the heart of it, uh, it really is about love, even in the military. And uh, of course, I grew up as a, as a Navy brat and uh, uh, watched many, many military, uh, you know, ceremonies and, uh, and also experienced my dad, you know, being away, having to sacrifice his presence um, in order for him to be where he was um, serving the troops. He was a Navy, U.S. Navy chaplain. And uh, really poured himself out self-sacrificially, um, you know, to bring the sacraments and, and the word of God and the gospel, you know, to, to uh, U.S. Marines and sailors in, in Vietnam and other uh, combat theaters. 
And uh, yeah, at the bottom of that, that's it's really all love. It's love of country. It's love of our fellow persons. Um, it's love of family. And, um, and yeah, so duty and love, rightfully understood, they, they go hand in hand, and uh, duty is that expression of love. Mm-hmm. The reason it's so important to get this question right, whether it be not going to the, to the extreme of thinking of, of love as duty-bound and, and harsh and cold, but neither thinking of love as being merely an emotional expression, is because our understanding of love— and of God's love for us and of our responsibility in love to the rest of our human family. Uh, It's a foundational um, philosophical value that however we view it, and we're going to have some view of love, right? Uh, We are a a creature that, that desires and needs love. It's a foundational element. So however we define it, uh, we're going to end up relating to everyone else based on that definition. Uh, That's true. Whether, whether we think of it as merely something for our own pleasure and something to be uh, achieved at all costs and that love is a way that we get served, or whether we think of love as um, some cold, hard reality, that's going to have implications in every other relationship that we have. So you've yeah. got in here... Uh, several, again, the book is Love Basics for Catholics. You've got several scriptural places for us to go and, and examine and meditate and think on to form our understanding of love, not just so that we have a good definition, but because that definition is essential for our own place within the human ecosystem. Yeah, yeah that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, in the different uh, scriptural romances, um, we see reflections of divine love. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, the book of Ruth and uh, the romance between Boaz and Ruth, uh, which is kind of the Old Testament rom-com or chick flick of uh, the scriptures of Israel, um, where you have uh, this, uh, you know, um, this famine. It begins with a crisis and this family going off to a foreign country to Moab and all the menfolk dying. And uh, this mother-in-law, Naomi, coming back. And uh, the first act of love is ironically not between a man and a woman in that book. It's between two women. It's this mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. And that's a kind of, you know, almost like a tertiary relationship in the ancient world. There were familial bonds there, but you could kind of voluntarily break those. And uh, and Ruth, this daughter-in-law, makes this beautiful, uh, I'm not going to recite it because it's I'm, I'm going to get choked up. But this beautiful covenant oath where she identifies herself with her mother-in-law and says, wherever you go, I'm going to go, yeah. and uh, binds her fate. It's so ironic. That was actually the wedding text uh, for my wedding to my wife, Dawn. Um, my my uh, father, who was a Protestant clergyman, this is before we came into the Catholic Church, actually used that to, to preach our wedding uh, sermon. And again, very striking because between two uh, women, you have this this expression of covenantal love. The, the story of the Book of Ruth is how one act of loving fidelity leads to another. And so Ruth, there's nothing in it for her at all. She makes this self-sacrificial covenantal commitment of love to her, her mother-in-law. They go back to Bethlehem. Really no prospects for Ruth there. She goes out in the fields to glean. 
And um, but her example of self-giving covenantal love kind of provokes a return on behalf of Boaz. He hears about that and he's moved. And so he uh, follows the covenantal law of Israel, which is in the laws of Moses and how you're supposed to go above and beyond for widows and orphans and sojourners. And so Ruth is a widow and a sojourner and Boaz goes above and beyond and and provides extra grain for her as she gleans in his fields. And so he reciprocates. And so you see this pattern of reciprocation between these two persons of virtue where acts of loving fidelity towards one another. And it culminates uh, in uh, in their marriage. There's a little steamy scene in Ruth chapter three that gets the PG-13 rating for the rom-com because you can't have a G-rated rom-com, you know, <laughs> what would that be? Um, you know, where Ruth makes a bit of a play for Boaz in the middle of the night on a on a threshing floor. And but thankfully, Boaz is such a virtuous guy. Nothing happens. It's all clean and up upright. And and uh, they end up getting uh, married the next day in the proper fashion. And and uh, from that comes a child. And ultimately, the line of uh, David, the royal dynasty comes from this marriage between Boaz and Ruth. Wow, there's so much in there, you know, uh, types of Christ, types of the church, but also the fact that if it weren't for these two virtuous people who found each other and formed a solid marriage, you wouldn't have gotten the royal dynasty of David and you, and and all of that, all that that meant to ultimately leading to the Messiah. And um, so it reminds us of what uh, St. John Paul II said, you know, that the history of the world is by way of the family, and we can make it more precise and say it's even by way of marriage, because that's the the foundation of a family. And the Ruth, the the book of Ruth, is really trying to convey that to us. For this story and many other insights like it, go pick up Love Basics for Catholics, illustrating God's love for us throughout the Bible over at AveMariaPress.com. Doctor Bergsma, thank you so much for being with us today. And it's been my pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Bergsma, or you want to go back and listen to it again, or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you're looking for more, I've got good news. There is always more. Each and every week, we record an extra segment that we make available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air, and in gratitude, we like to give them some extra content. You can see some of that content by going over to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking that Patreon link there in the menu bar, and scrolling through. After about six months, those extra segments become available to everyone. Go back and catch some of those older extra segments for some of your favorite episodes. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, original language research, biblical commentaries, and so much more. You can learn more over at Verbum.com. Our reading today from scripture comes from the first letter of St. John, chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God. Everyone who loves is begotten by God and knows God. Whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love. In this way, the love of God was revealed to us. God sent his only Son into the world 
so that we might have life through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God, yet if we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is brought to perfection in us. That reading comes from the first letter of St. John, chapter 4. As Dr. Bergsmo was talking about the story of Ruth, he said it can be encapsulated in the idea that one act of loving fidelity uh, leads to another. And I think that that kind of sums up this passage as well. Uh, this passage out of, of 1 John is the Apostle John is entreating us back again to that, that, that commandment of Christ to love one another. And he says, this act of God and God's love for us, this act of loving fidelity, should be the the catalyst and and the seed and the foundation of our own act of loving fidelity to those who are around us. He says, beloved, love one another. Why? Because love is of God. It comes from God. It is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And this is love. Not that we, it's not our action. It's not the thing that that we came up with. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sacrificed, sent his son as expiation for our sins. And then here, this this whole idea of one act of loving fidelity leads to another. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. Jesus himself said, they, the world around you, will know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And this isn't just, again, those feelings of of happiness or brotherhood or uh, kind of pat you on the back, uh, oh, aren't we all so happy? This is that that deep and abiding, willing the good of the other, sacrificing one's own interests for the sake of the other, caring about the common good of those who we are connected to in Christ, and living out that self-giving, self-sacrificial love for the benefit of the other, willing the good of the other. This is the, the, the keystone. This is the thing that Jesus says, when people see this in you, they will know you are my disciples. This is that key indicating factor that, that he predicted, that he basically gave us the, the clue right early on. How are people going to know that you belong to me? By the love that you have for one another. So let that be our challenge. As we come to know the depths of his love, may that spur us on to love as well. Our reading today from Church History comes from a work by St. Thomas Aquinas on the Feast of Corpus Christi. Since it was the will of God's only begotten Son that men should share in his divinity, he assumed our nature in order that by becoming man he might make men gods. Moreover, when he took our flesh, he dedicated the whole of its substance to our salvation. He offered his body to God the Father on the altar of the cross as a sacrifice for our reconciliation. 
He shed his blood for our ransom and purification so that we might be redeemed from our wretched state of bondage and cleansed from all sin. But to ensure that the memory of so great a gift would abide with us forever, he left his body as food and his blood as drink for the faithful to consume in the form of bread and wine. O precious and wonderful banquet that brings us salvation and contains all sweetness. Could anything be of more intrinsic value? Under the old law, it was the flesh of calves and goats that was offered. But here, Christ himself, the true God, is set before us as our food. What could be more wonderful than this? No other sacrament has greater healing power. Through it, sins are purged away, virtues are increased, and the soul is enriched with an abundance of every spiritual gift. It is offered in the church for the living and the dead, so that what was instituted for the salvation of all may be for the benefit of all. Yet, in the end, no one can fully express the sweetness of the sacrament in which spiritual delight is tasted at its very source, and in which we renew the memory of that surpassing love for us, which Christ revealed in his passion. It was to impress the vastness of this love more firmly upon the hearts of the faithful that our Lord instituted this sacrament at the Last Supper. As he was on the point of leaving the world to go to the Father, after celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he left it as a perpetual memorial of his passion. It was the fulfillment of ancient figures and the greatest of all his miracles, while for those who were to experience the sorrow of his departure, it was destined to be a unique and abiding consolation. That reading again comes from a work by St. Thomas Aquinas on the Feast of Corpus Christi. God so loved us that he sent his only Son. Christ so loved us that he took on human nature, becoming like us in all ways, and joining that divine nature to the human nature so that we could then be elevated and made sharers in the divine life. Christ so loved us that he laid aside his own will, as he said to the Father, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, and moved toward the cross for the purpose of reconciling humanity back to himself. He laid down his life in sacrifice, but then did even more. He sent us the Holy Spirit and remains with us. He gives himself to us in the sacrament, and he does all of this over and over and over again because of his great love for us, and through that great love compels us and draws us and beckons us to live out that same kind of love to all that we encounter. In a specific way, to love uh, within marriage, within family relationships, but then also to recognize that we belong to one another and we all owe our love to everyone else in this human family of ours. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. The book again is Love Basics for Catholics on AveMariaPress.com. I strongly encourage you to go pick it up. 
Today's show was brought to you by Lexi and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Over on social media, Facebook.com slash Step Outside the Walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.